Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, you may want to double check the spokes of your old bike tires, see if you have a uh-huh. near mint 1952 Mickey Mantle Tops card hidden away. On Sunday, one such card set the record for dollars paid for a piece of sports memorabilia fetching $12.6 million at auction. I think we can credit the seller with a successful gamble and the buyer. Well, we'll see. Uh, John, what was your reaction upon learning that somebody paid $12.6 million for a piece of cardboard? Well, I, I have all 10,000 or so of my tops cards and four sports in my closet. So, uh, and every year, actually, if I'm honest, I see new sets of uh, uh, tops at target and I waste a little more money. Okay. So uh, tough for me to be holier than now on this. Um <laughs> But, you know, the guy the guy selling the card obviously has to be from Florida or New Jersey. And it turns out to be the latter, just in case you're wondering. Okay. Um, I love this gamble based in part of the guy's teenage grandson saying that none of his friends have ever heard of the Mick. He was the iconic <laughs> baseball player for fans of a certain age. And I'm certain that age is between like 66 and checkout time. Uh, you don't have to be an actuary to figure this one out. Um, by the way, I did collect one or possibly two uh, mantle cards as a kid from the 1969 set and because he was in i think the last series from that year the fun fact that him in the on the back of the card i remember was noting that he announced his retirement on march 1st of that year hey okay so what's the point of this card um now i remember broken down mantle and white jumpsuit viva las vegas elvis so mm-hmm. i missed the best parts of both of them um that said i'd rather spend on elvis memorabilia if that's my gamble Sorry, Mickey. <laughs> now I'm picturing John Brennan in a full Elvis getup. That would be, that's something I'd pay to see. Um, so I was talking to someone recently about how much it costs to get a card professionally graded. Yeah. Apparently that costs like 200 bucks per card, which mm-hmm. man, what a racket. It, it, it's not yeah. worth doing unless you're confident your card is worth at least a thousand bucks. When I was a kid, you took the card into the card store. The guy behind the counter looked at it through a loop for 30 seconds and told you, mint or near mint or fair mm-hmm. and and offered you some slightly offensively low price for it yeah. um but anyway if i had a 12 million dollar card I, I guess i'd pay for the professional grading um i can't remember if i mentioned on the pod recently that my mom is moving out of her house and downsizing mm-hmm. to a condo yeah. so i recently collected the last of my belongings there including the rest of my baseball card collection that i hadn't already given to my son so now he has the whole collection mm-hmm. I doubt there's anything in there worth more than 50 bucks. Um, You know, the the Mark McGuire Olympic card is in the fancy plastic case, definitely mint condition. That was once the prize of the collection. You know, for my (laughs) generation, that McGuire Olympic (laughs) was the card, but I think it's worth about 15 or 20 bucks now. I I guess that's a gamble I lost. I should have sold it in 1998. Uh, But anyway, I've given my son a whole lot of cardboard. 
worth maybe a couple thousand bucks total at best, while some other dude's singular piece of cardboard is worth $12.6 million. What, what a strange world we live in. Yeah, I'm betting the under on that number too. But uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> uh, I just bought, I spent 25 bucks about two weeks ago on a box of cards, a new 2022 cards. And as it happens, I got, there's this like weird thick card that's like as thick as like 14 cards in one, yeah, you know, yep, and the helmet, those. helmet card, they call it. And I got Aaron judge, right. Pretty good timing, I think. Uh-huh. And, um, they want like 25 bucks for it online. So if I go into a card store, I think somebody offers me like $4 for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's brutal. And like, it, like it just came out of the box. Like, like I opened it up. Okay. Here it is. And I'm going to the store and I'm presenting it. Is that mint? No, it's not mint. Well, I mean, it was just in the package like 20 seconds ago. Yes, I mean, but the, I think, the air touched it. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's losing so, value by the second. Yeah, it's brutal. And I have, you know, obviously I have, you know, Nolan Ryan, rookie, Rod, uh, Rod Carew, Johnny Bench. I mean, you know, and I've got Will Chamberlain, OJ Simpson, Joe Namath. I mean, whatever. And yeah, I might get a couple thousand from my set. Uh, you're not going to get that. <laughs> <laughs> and you just named a whole bunch of ex-athletes that uh, a certain generation, much younger than us, will uh, may or may not know who they are. But you'll be you'll be pleased to know that everyone you just named, my son, could tell you who they are. So oh, I, I think I think that's a parenting win, at least. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number two hundred and seven of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 206 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And after you listen to these episodes, don't delete them. Hold on to them. They'll only go up in value. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by veteran industry media personality Patrick Everson, who recently joined our company as senior reporter for VegasInsider.com. Well, that's Patrick about his daily grind during football season, and it is a grind. His own sports betting preferences, and how long it took him to get used to living in Vegas. But first, it's been a late August level, I would say, busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. This week's news items are all either firsts or biggests, and we start with one that's a first and by definition, also a biggest, as this Tuesday, finally, Ontario dropped its first iGaming revenue report, covering an almost three-month period from April 4th to June 30th. And, well, some of the numbers are interesting. Well, some of them are hard to put in perspective, and not just because they're in Canadian dollars. Uh, In total, $4.076 billion was wagered online in those three months, so that's about $1.36 billion per month in Canadian dollars, so a little over a billion dollars a month in U.S. currency, which sounds at first like, wow, that's New Jersey or New York level betting, but it also includes online casino and online poker handle. And of course, handle in those verticals is almost meaningless. It's only revenue that most U.S. states report. In any case, total gaming revenue for the three months was $162 million Canadian. And here were some interesting numbers. By the end of June, there were 492,000 active player accounts in a province with about 15 million citizens. And the average monthly revenue per player was $113. Two points of complaint about the release of the figures. One, 
It took until late August for iGaming Ontario to release the first data from a province that launched in April. And two, the release included no details about operator share or even how much was sports betting and how much was iCasino. Anyway, Greg Warren and Chris Altruda provided some further analysis on Sports Handle, which I recommend our listeners look up. John, what's your reaction to these numbers and to how long it took us to see them? Yeah, I mean, come on, Canada, you're better than this. You really are. I mean, I'll give them a one-time pass, though, on how slow they were. Because, sure, you don't want to make mistakes and then come back with a second or even a third amended report. That doesn't look great either. So that part I'm going to forgive uh, as a one-time deal. Okay. But who lumps in sports betting with online casino? I mean, it was an easy choice for New Jersey since online casino debuted five years before sports betting, right? right. But like take Pennsylvania and Michigan, for example. They were more, a little more contemporaneous on the new legal gambling, but they didn't make a sloppy Joe out of the numbers like this the thing did. So, you know, no operator shares either. I mean, Canadians are so damn nice. So maybe they didn't want anyone to make fun of the losers uh oops i just did if even if not by name <laughs> yeah uh so in the release from iGaming ontario they said quote we realize that this report has been highly anticipated and we have appreciated your patience for <laughs> the time and diligence taken to achieve the desired accuracy of this data Ugh. i don't know after all that extra time and yeah. quote-unquote diligence pretty lame to include this little data <laughs> uh you know <laughs> new york pumps out a more revealing report than this every single week. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe the next one from Canada will include an operator breakdown and a vertical breakdown. I'd love to see sports betting broken down by sport. I want to know what Canadians are betting on, but I'm not holding my breath for any of that stuff. Um, the one number they gave us that I find interesting is that number of active accounts. Um, out of the 15 million in Ontario, based on some quick research, it looks like about 12 million are adults. So, mm-hmm. Uh, that means about 4% of adults opened accounts, although some of the 492,000 could be people who don't live in Ontario and, and drove in and opened accounts, mm-hmm. just as we see people do in the U.S. when they're in non-betting states. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's assume that number is close to accurate, somewhere around mm-hmm. 4%. I'd be curious to see that number for New Jersey, Pennsylvania, yeah. et cetera. What percentage mm-hmm. of adults have at least one iGaming account. Um, and, and it'll probably grow a bit in Ontario. This is just the first three months and NFL season hasn't started yet. I could see that 492,000 hitting at least 600 or 700,000 a week or two into football season. But that I found a very interesting number. Well, although that's counts, right? So right. Uh, a pro is going to have six or eight accounts. I well, assume. let yeah. me see. It's, I had said, uh, let me look again at the, the wording of it was 492 thousand active player accounts you're right so you're right it could be far fewer than 492,000 yes so New Jersey has uh, you know 26 uh, options whatever Pennsylvania has a lot Colorado has a lot Michigan has a lot uh, Maryland's gonna have up to like 200 whoever they are claiming uh, so uh, they're not gonna have that many but they could so uh, yeah that's gonna be a factor also so I mean I, I still I I always want more numbers, no matter what. I, I want I want info, so I I still want what you're talking about, but uh, uh, it'll take a little parsing to figure out what it really means. Yeah, true. Okay, our next story takes us from Canada to New Jersey. Although this is really a national sports betting story, not just a Jersey story. On Monday, the first legal sports betting exchange took its first wager as Profit Exchange beat Sport Trade, whose founder and CEO Alex Kane was on our podcast just a few weeks ago. Profit Exchange beat Sport Trade to market by going live in New Jersey 
with former New York Giants player Victor Cruz placing the first bet or buying the first shares or however you want to describe it. Uh, For now, Profit only allows markets on NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and college football and basketball, and it's just point spreads, money line, and point totals. But the options will expand before too long, and Profit also plans to debut in Indiana soon. John, we covered some of the ins and outs of how exchange betting works and who it appeals to with Alex Kane last month. Now that it exists in one U.S. state, how big of a game changer do you think this will be? Will we look back at this five years from now as a watershed moment in sports betting? Yeah, I'm going to bet the under here. Uh, Based in part on the comments of a few professional sports bettors and a piece for our colleague Jeff Edelstein, but also in part from my own experience watching, you know, yes, New Jersey again. uh, They launched exchange wagering on the horse racing side several years ago, and um, I saw some pros do it. Uh, It failed mainly due to a lack of liquidity in the pools, but also from the early days of daily fantasy sports. I mean, you have sharks swallowing minnows and you run out of minnows pretty quick. And uh, but who knows, maybe by the time the Wire Act and I turn 65 together in a few years, uh, Congress will have amended it. and We can have a nationwide pool of betters. But I doubt it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that under. I mean, I do expect that exchange wagering will find an audience, but I can't imagine it remotely approaching the size of the audience for Vegas style sports betting. I mean, there's got to be a reason that people are constantly saying in-game betting is the future. And you never hear anybody saying exchange betting is the future. I I don't see it becoming the dominant form. It has a unique appeal. I expect more that it appeals to people who are into day trading and and less Mm -hmm. that it appeals to people who like to make a standard bet and watch a game and sweat that bet. So uh, yeah, I asked the question, will it be a watershed moment in sports betting? My guess like yours is no. I also think though, that it's great to introduce more variety to the market, more options for consumers. And I hope this becomes available in more States. You know, it's good for the whole industry if this Mm. succeeds and inspires companies to keep innovating and keep trying new things. And if it is a clear success, It's only a matter of time until FanDuel and DraftKings are also offering exchange wagering. I mean, uh, look at the best ball fantasy drafts that we were talking about a few weeks Mm -hmm. ago. Underdog gets it going, finds some success, and the very next season there's DraftKings doing best ball also. So I guess that's my semi-bold prediction here is that before too long, the big mobile operators will have some form of exchange wagering in their apps alongside traditional wagering, if indeed profit and sport trades succeed and show that there's money to be made. Yeah. And I like the idea of shark on shark action, right? Somebody wants to bet 25 grand on one side and they obviously can't get that bet in many cases at any books in their state. And yet here they can find somebody else who was a shark and they like the other side and then they have at it. That's uh, that's that's great. I mean, they if they want to bet that and they know what they're doing and they are going up against somebody who knows what they're doing or somebody so wealthy that it doesn't even matter that they are stupid enough to lose the bet. I'm all for that. So uh, yeah, I mean the, the limits that a lot of pros get is understandably frustrating and this kind of changes that. And I saw it with horse racing where in New Jersey, where um, look, you know, you're two adults, consenting adults, right? I mean, you want to risk that kind of money on that number and uh, challenge somebody uh, to a showdown. Uh, I say, go for it. Let's uh, let's give people the options. Yeah, I mean, in that way, it's it's very much like DFS and and online poker of mm-hmm. the you know the heads up matches between the yeah. best players and the players willing to spend the most money, and uh, sometimes the players willing to spend the most money aren't that good, and that helps pad the bankrolls of the actual best players yeah. and all that. But yeah, it's it's a lot of that mano a mano, which is yeah, kind of fun and different than just 
I'm going up against the sports books and I know they have a, a small edge on me in the long run. Amen. Uh, all right. Our third and final story is very much up my alley as it takes place in Pennsylvania and it's a poker story, but it's Western Pennsylvania. It involves a few people who were lucky and there was a lot of money involved. So maybe it's not that directly up my alley. Uh, anyway, Friday at Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh, the largest poker bad beat jackpot in U.S. casino history was awarded. It had been more than 16 months since it last hit. So the jackpot steadily built to more than $1.2 million before finally the magical cards were dealt at a $1, $3, no limit table. Uh, the rules of the bad beat jackpot are that a hand of four tens or better has to lose to a superior hand. Ben Flanagan was dealt pocket aces and played them slow, helping invite Ray Broderson's King 10 of spades into the pot. The flop came ace of spades, jack of spades, nine of diamonds. So three aces versus a royal flush draw. The turn was the queen of spades, completing Broderson's royal flush. And the river was the one card in the deck that could trigger the bad beat jackpot, the case ace. So the money got split between all of the players at the table with Flanagan winning 490,000 for suffering the bad beat Broderson getting 368,000 for dishing out the bad beat. Plus probably a few hundred dollars that were in the pot that hand and the other six players at the table got $61,000 each just for being there. Um, I love this story. I think it's a lot of fun. And our colleague, Gary Rotstein spoke to Broderson and wrote up some interesting details of how the hand played out and what everyone was thinking. John, your thoughts on this massive jackpot hitting and how much would it suck if you were playing at a table where it hit again the very next day with the jackpot having just been reset to about $10,000? Yeah, I love this story, too. And then the dramas have played out and then was recounted. Um, you know, sports business geeks love to make estimates that vary from, oh, scientific methods to wild ass guesses about how much value a brand gains from, for example, a major celebrity pimping their product without even having a marketing deal with them. And it's worth a lot, obviously. You know, I hear the casino gets the coveted gamble on bump, uh, which is okay, okay priceless. But um, <laughs> but there's a lot of publicity about this overall. In the end, that's good for business, I think. As for your example, it would only suck if you somehow hadn't heard about the reset and right. you jumped up and shouted about how you're quitting your job and dumping your spouse. And <laughs> then you found out the bad news. Yeah, right. that's a bad, that would be a bad beat, actually. That would be the ultimate bad beat. I, think. I guess so. A bad beat where you're still winning like three or four thousand dollars, <laughs> depending on which player yeah, you were. It's in probably the not going to but... cover my uh, my number there. Right. No, not quite. Um, so uh, the fun twist of, the, of this story, uh, and I guess kind of spoiling Gary's article here for uh, for for those who were planning to read it but the the twist that i really like is that there is this other special promotion at rivers pittsburgh a high hand promotion that gives two hundred dollars to the highest hand in the poker room every half hour so flanagan wasn't playing his pocket aces slow because he thought he had a realistic chance at the bad beat jackpot mm. it was because hey i got pocket aces good chance I make a full house or something like that. And that's the best hand of the half hour. And I win $200, but it only counts if the hand gets all the way to the river. So if you raise pre-flop with your aces to protect mm -hmm. them the way you normally ought to, you risk hand ending the hand early and you don't have a shot at that high hand. And that really influenced how the hand was played. Uh, that said, once you got to the flop with these two hands and you have a set of aces, against a royal flush draw nobody was ever folding no matter how it was played um but i also love the details from gary's story of after that river ace and both players went all in 
and they're thinking about the possibility of what just happened before mm-hmm. the cards are revealed. Yep. And Broderson said he went into shock and can't even remember the details of how the hand played out on the river, but he does remember saying to Flanagan, you better have quad aces and Flanagan before having turned his card over cards over calmly said I do. Uh, and, and then it took like two hours for the poker room to verify everything and figure mm-hmm. out all the payouts. And I can only imagine how much that dealer got tipped. Uh, I have mm-hmm. to assume that lucky dealer went home with at least $5,000, maybe even 10,000 bucks in her pocket. Yeah, I hope so. Although when you have players with that overwhelmed and amazed, like, I don't know if they think of that. Um, unfortunately, there, there uh, was a note in Gary's story about uh, just, it didn't specify amounts or anything, yeah. but in talking to uh, Broderson that, the his three hundred sixty eight thousand dollars, whatever, didn't didn't factor in tipping the dealers throughout the room. So so some there definitely were some tips distributed. Whether everybody tipped, I, I'm not sure, but uh, it definitely happened. I guess actually the the two hour um, delay to sort of <laughs> verify and figure it out helps give them a chance to think through how much they ought to be tipping. Yeah, because I think with a, with a higher level player involved and and an amateur gets incredibly lucky, they can sort of you know, mentioned to the amateur, oh, by the way, you know, it's up to you, obviously, but, you know, you want X. I mean, if you want right. to throw a little bit extra to the dealer, oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. But there, there's no high level player as far as I can tell here. So right. <laughs> to remind you, like, oh, by the way. So yeah, that's what right. I wonder. Yeah, the I the poker room managers, I'm sure, are. I mean, again, they can't force anyone to to tip. Yeah. You won what you won, but yeah. I'm sure everyone at the table had time to talk it over and think it through. And the mm. you know the folks who won sixty one thousand just for being there, maybe maybe they threw five hundred bucks her way, but the you know a, a few thousand from from the two big winners, I would think, and uh, even probably it sounds like some money went into the the pool for all the dealers in the room. But uh, I guess that's one more reason they have to uh, verify it for a couple of hours, probably watch the tapes, make (laughs) sure, make sure because otherwise uh, you don't want to incentivize dealers to, uh, to intentionally uh, rig the deck and deal a bad beat jackpot just because they know they'll get a big tip out of it. Exactly. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the gamble on interview. There are people who tweet out a lot of information during football season, and then there are people who tweet out a lot of information during football season. Patrick Everson is an absolute must-follow if you're into the details of what's happening at the sportsbooks, and now we're proud to call him a co-worker, as Patrick recently started a new gig as senior reporter for fellow Better Collective site, VegasInsider.com. Patrick, congrats on the new job, welcome to the family, and welcome to Gamble On. I appreciate it, Eric. It's great to join you and John. I really appreciate you having me on. Obviously, I've, I've bumped into you two kind of on the regular in the in the uh, in the conference circuit, and uh, I, I you know at SBC and so forth last month, which was a which was a great deal of fun. Man, SBC knows how to throw a conference, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is great. I'm I'm definitely happy to be part of Better Collective. Really thrilled to to be with Vegas Insider. It seems like a pretty darn good fit, and uh, excited to continue doing some of the things I'm doing and expanding on some of the things I'm doing. Yeah, it seems like a great fit to us as well. And and speaking of the things that you do, I'm dying to know what a weekend in the life of Patrick Everson is like <laughs> during football season. You're uh-huh. tweeting constant updates on odds movement and betting splits. 
How much time do you spend on the phone with bookmakers? How much time do you actually get to spend enjoying the games? Just in general, how long are those days and how exhausted are you when Sunday night wraps up? Oh boy, when Sunday night wraps up, it is absolutely time to crack a cold one or maybe two. <laughs> but but look, I'm getting to cover sports betting and being on the ground here in Las Vegas and inside the sports books doing videos and so forth. It's pretty exhilarating. It kind of, it, it, it's its own brand of, even though I require coffee bean on the regular, it's its own brand of caffeine jolt. So, but the, they're, they're definitely long days. I mean, Saturday and Sunday are 12 to 14 hours, maybe even approaching 16 hours when you, you know, from the early morning with the tweet storm uh, each day and then, uh, you know, doing videos from the sportsbook floors, kind of previewing games in different windows throughout the day on Saturday and Sunday. And then you get home Saturday night and you start prepping all your Sunday NFL stuff. Um, and then by the time I get home Sunday, after basically doing that same pattern of work all day, uh, it's time to do an NFL opening line report on the following week and also start looking at the Monday night game and, and also kind of reviewing how the Sunday went for the books. So Look, Saturday and Sunday are a grind, but like I said, it's sports betting. It's fun. I'm trying to make it, you know, informative, um, actionable, but also entertaining, recognizing that 90% or more of the people who engage in this space are, are just trying to have some skin in the game, hopefully responsibly have some skin in the game and have a good time. Uh, and that's how I'm trying to, uh, you know, think of it while I'm grinding through a 16 hour day, I'm like, Hey, you know, this is kind of fun. I do get to meet and talk to a lot of interesting people. And there's a lot of neat and interesting people who I think follow me, who like to engage with this information, which I really appreciate. And um, so it's all worth it. I'm definitely shot by the end of Sunday night, but it's totally, it's totally worth it. Saturday versus Sunday is one day tend to be more grueling than the other, or, or they're pretty even. I think Sunday's probably the bigger grind because then you're, like I said, when I get home from all this running around and so forth, uh, you know, I, I like to, I mean, I, I've not been required in any of my stops and, and same with Vegas Insider. Uh, I've not been required to turn around uh, an opening line report on the following week's games, but I just feel compelled to do it because I know there's only one game left. And everybody's looking ahead to week two of the NFL or week three of the NFL or whatever. So the, the subsequent week of the NFL. And I feel like, you know what, if I can bat this thing out with a, you know, an article and get a short video to go with it and get it up Sunday night, even if it's nine o'clock here in Vegas and midnight on the East coast, somebody's going to be pretty happy to see that. And they'll get a real, you know, a good early look from a, from a reliable and, 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 and respected source. Generally, it's someone like John Murray at the Superbook about where these games are opening and what's already happening and what they anticipate happening throughout the week. So it helps betters kind of, uh, you know, get their week in motion and figure out, hey, do I maybe need to be on this game right now? Or is this one I need to sit back and wait until Sunday pre-kickoff or somewhere in the middle? Or, you know, what What if there was a key injury? You know, let's say Patrick Mahomes, heaven forfend. I'm not even as a Broncos fan, I'm not rooting for this. <laughs> but let's say he tweaks his knee in week one uh, at Arizona, obviously that's going to be like a six point swing or maybe more to the, to the line. And I think people are going to want to know that on Sunday night, as they look ahead to week two against the chargers, again, not rooting for that at all. Don't want that to happen. I like watching the guy, even as a Broncos fan, as difficult as that may be, but uh, <laughs> Sunday, because of that Sunday tends to be the longer day. I'm definitely 
really shot by the end of that. And believe me, by Monday night, I'm totally ready to be like, okay, can I just go play golf on Tuesday? Even as badly as, and I played, and I'm horrible at golf, Eric. I went out yesterday and it was just not a good day. Plus it was 108. But I still, I still, I didn't play well. I put up a lot. I'm serious. I put up a lot of touchdowns for scores, which was not good. <laughs> and but, two point conversions too. Yeah. <laughs> but exactly, no two point conversions, John. It was close though. But I did par three of the four par threes. Okay. You know, I can't. You know, and that's and so I'm going to come back. But so <laughs> even though my golf game is bumpy, by Tuesday I'm like I'd rather go out and play a bumpy round of golf uh, today. Uh, as my relaxation, if you will, um, after that, after those four days, but uh, at three to four days, because really it kind of picks up on Friday night with getting things together for the Saturday morning tweet storm and so forth. But, uh, but again, it's all very enjoyable. I, it's just, I'm, I'm lucky to do what I do. I'm honestly blessed. Yeah, I got to tell you, Patrick, I'm going to ask about your favorite sports, but I want to give you a little bit of a ghost to Christmas future here. Uh, I covered the sure. NBA for 10 years, and that's, uh, you know, eight months a year, uh, oh. a lot of road games, obviously, you know, seven day a week. So the whole thing. And I was shocked when I stopped covering the NBA around 2001 or two, that suddenly the next season started and I wasn't watching games and I couldn't figure out why at first. Then I realized I was correctly equating watching a game with work. So if I'm not working, <laughs> wait a minute, I, I already worked all day. I was working a more conventional schedule at that point. And now I'm going to work again because that's what I think watching an NBA game is now. So uh, mm-hmm. be, beware of that if, uh, if football is your favorite. But just generally speaking, I am curious about, A, what your favorite sports to watch are, and then, B, what your favorite sports to bet on because they might not be the same thing. Right. And I don't think they, they probably aren't now. Uh, my favorite sport to watch is definitely NFL. Even And honestly – in all the running around I do, and Eric kind of alluded to this with a couple of his first questions, I don't get to see a lot yeah. of the game. I mean, I'll see snippets. I'll see 10 minutes here and 15 minutes there while I'm bouncing between books and, and so forth. And, and if I'm getting home to see a little bit on TV, but it is still my favorite sport to watch. I enjoy it a lot. And, and, and I really, you know, over the last several years being in the niche I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm much more dialed into the to the spread, really the spread and the total as much as anything, even if it's a non-consequential game, it's just interesting to watch how many of these games, how close the odds makers are on these on the regular and watch these games come down to, Hey, the totals up in the air and there's a team driving down the field and there's 30 seconds left. And it's a completely meaningless score otherwise, but it's meaningful in some ways. It's still my favorite sport, but I get where you're coming from on that, John, because it does. I, I don't consume as much sports as I did I mean, I've been in the sports journalism space for decades, but I don't consume as much now in the role that I'm in with all the work I'm doing as I did prior to this, because I wasn't a beat writer. Um, and I, and I, you know, God bless you for doing it, because I, I know people who are doing it. I actually played golf yesterday with Dave Shane, who um, uh, he is uh, now moving into, he's joining Todd Dewey at the Review Journal, to, you know, as their second person covering sports betting, and he's really good. He's been the Knights, the Golden Knights beat right of the last few years. And it's just an absolute grind. And I don't even know how you did it for as long as you did it with, with basketball because it just doesn't seem to end. So um, I would rather be in, in my shoes and busy and maybe not seeing as much sports as I like or feeling like it's work with the sports betting scene than with that six, seven, eight months a year of uh, travel and all that. That's, that's a real grind. So I, I definitely uh, have a lot of respect for those types. Yeah, and how about like betting on a sport? Do you... Uh... 
uh, right. you probably don't, I don't even know if you would bet on the NFL at all, considering how busy you are, but uh, do you like, you know, it might be golf or tennis or NASCAR, who knows anything you like to bet on or. Well, so I'm always going to bet my Denver Broncos to win the Super Bowl, but that's more of a, just a, I just do it every year. I mean, yeah. why not? They're my favorite team. So I'll bet them every year. I, I um, hope that you've done it on the years when the, when they actually did win. Oh yeah. I do it it's okay. every, every, every year. Okay. So I have sure. cash. <laughs> I have cash uh, three times now. Okay. Is that right? right. Three times. Uh, but it was bumpy before that, believe me. <laughs> um, and I do still enjoy betting the, the NFL from here and there. I, I do kind of, and I like college a little bit too. Uh, I, I like the in-game, honestly, John. I think that's kind of cool to just uh, try and if you if you have a good feeling about a game, but you wait for a little bit better number and mm-hmm. and do that, I think that's kind of fun. But what I've found over the last couple of years, I like doing at least as much and maybe more. I love betting golf. I like betting the golf majors particularly. I just think that's a lot of fun. You know, you bet the futures. You take somebody at, you know, 10, 12, 15 to 1. You take somebody at 25 to 30, another guy at 40 to 50, and, you know, a longer shot at 80, and and just see what happens. And if a couple of guys make the cut and, you know, you've got something going for the weekend, um, it can get a little dicey on the final day of a major. You got guys jumbling around. You're like, oh man, in play. Should I get in and do a little bit more here? It's pretty, it, it's easy to get yourself in a little trouble. So, uh, so, so please be smart about it. But I think it's a fun sport to bet. What I need yeah. to get better at with it is I just like betting the outrights and I need to take, and, and I did this a little more this year and it worked out really a little bit with the, uh, with the masters. And I think even with the U S open is don't be afraid to take a top, you know, a top five, a top 10, a top 20 at short plus money. Uh, you know, don't, don't be discouraged by that. It's a good way to, to, to stack up a few wins for you. If you, if you don't, uh, if you don't insist on strictly betting outrights for the weekend. Yeah. That's my uh, modus operandi actually. Yeah. So I'm with it. So we've asked this question of other folks who live and work in Vegas. Um, so, so I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I, I want to hear your perspective on it anyway. How has the sports betting scene in Vegas changed post-PASPA since Nevada stopped being the only state people could go to in the U.S. to legally bet on games? Well, Eric, it's interesting in a couple of ways. This is the arguably the one area I think it's the most interesting is that last year during football season, so we're now, I mean, I don't know if you want to say it's post-pandemic, but it was certainly beyond what we, where we were at in, in, in 2020, the 2020-2021 season, well yeah. beyond that. Yeah. You know, places open and so forth. Every month, Nevada, and so that's primarily Las Vegas, because uh, Las Vegas is the driver here, was setting uh, handle records. In September, October, November, December, January, the Super Bowl handle blew away the previous best by like a a ton. I don't even know what it was, but I think it might've even been on the order of, uh, you know, of a hundred million or more. It was, it was really big. I'd have to go back and look, but it was a lot. So Nevada continued to set records while more than half the country state-wise, not necessarily population wise, but more than half the country state-wise was engaged in legal regulated sports betting. So I found that fascinating and it struck to a point that, that Chris Andrews, the sportsbook director at the South Point, and several other odds makers here in town had noted when PASPA was struck down four years ago. And that was Chris was very much rising tide lifts all boats. We're going to be fine with this. And to an extent, I think they're absolutely correct, because what I think has happened is a lot of people have learned about sports betting, gotten acclimated to it, enjoyed it. And then they're like, 
ooh, the Super Bowl's coming, or ooh, March Madness is coming. We got to get to Vegas. Mm. And they still come here in droves, and, they st- and they're betting in bigger droves than ever, which is, it, it, it surprised me, but it, it absolutely, you know, backed up what Chris Andrews and others were saying. Now, that said, I think Nevada needs to start looking forward quickly. I, they are being lapped by the field in terms of uh, being able to register mobily for apps. Uh, you know, remotely register remotely for apps fund and withdraw remotely for apps, the Nevada game and control board. And I don't know whether it needs the legislature involved or not, but I don't think that run is going, I don't think Nevada is going to dry up by any stretch, but I don't think that kind of run like they had last season is going to continue if they don't make some adjustments in how people can access sports betting. Um, they're, they're getting lapped by the field in many, many other States. New Jersey is arguably the gold standard, um, you know, with, with the number of books available and the fact and how you can register and so forth. Colorado, my home state is honestly Mm -hmm. phenomenal. There's a ton of books there. You can, you can register remotely. You can fund remotely. You can withdraw remotely everything. And I understand the casino business is massive here and it's a huge driver of the local economy. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a difficult dance going on. But I just I'm not sure that Nevada can continue to enjoy that kind of continued um, ascension with its monthly handle if it doesn't try to adapt at least a little bit to what other states are doing. Yeah, that's certainly been a a big sticking point for a lot of people. This need to to uh, use the remote registration and and how that slows business down Mm -hmm. on the mobile sports book front. I'm curious whether you think we're any closer to DraftKings and FanDuel coming to Vegas uh, than has been the case all these years that they've been frozen out. They're still frozen out for now, although I guess there's a FanDuel-branded yes. retail book uh, either coming or that just yes. opens up. So do you think that those walls may be coming down soon? I, th- I don't know if it'll be soon. I think they will. DraftKings has got a very nice risk office over uh, just a few couple of, couple of miles south of the Las Vegas Strip proper. It's on Las Vegas Boulevard mm. and uh, a very nice big office, great space. I've been in there. And then as you alluded to with FanDuel, so I believe Boyd Gaming has been re- leaning on FanDuel as kind of a, I don't, I don't know, a platform might be too strong a word, but there's a partnership there. Okay. And there has been, I believe for almost like a couple of years now. So I'm not surprised to kind of see this happen. And maybe this is uh, with the gaming control board's approval recently, um, you know, dipping its toe into the water to see about this. Uh, If it, if it works out the way I, and I expect it will uh, for, for the uh, casino or the downtown casino, that's uh, the Boyd casino. That's, that's branding itself with FanDuel then I, you know, obviously DraftKings is going to want a piece of that pie as well. I think it can work out, but I don't think that, I don't think Nevada is going to back off of any operator in this state has to be anchored by a brick and mortar. Right. And I get that. And I think we can live with that. But to my point earlier, I do think there's got to be some, some, some wiggle room, some adjusting in terms of being able to register remotely, fund and withdraw remotely, et cetera. Right. Uh, yeah. So I know there's a movie called Leaving Las Vegas, but rather talking about living <laughs> in Las Vegas, which is uh, what you do. And yeah. um, I, there's 
I, I got to say that for gamblers, for shoppers and for foodies, you know, Las Vegas is a must visit. And if, if you like more, more than one of those, then it's even more of a must. But, um, you know, it is always over under, over 100 degrees, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, you got a lot of drunk people between like 8 a.m. and 8 a.m. actually uh, yeah. every day. So that's a little strange to me. So I'm curious how long you've been there and how long does it take to uh, where you don't even give a second look to a bachelorette party at 11 a.m. and they're off and getting drunk and whatever? Well, okay. So I've been here 28 years. Uh, I was with the newspaper for a long time, the review journal here uh, in a couple of different roles, mostly on the sports desk. Um, But also uh, my last three years of the newspaper before I, uh, and I was doing a lot of side projects with, with covers.com primarily and and some other stuff during that, during my final few years there. But my last three years at the RJ, I was on the um, opinion page. I was the editorial writer. So uh, that's really what got me more into the politics and policy of sports betting too, which was fascinating. And I know that's way off track from your question, but getting back to your question, uh, 28 years here. And you, first off, you get used to the heat. I'm telling I played golf yesterday. It was 108. And, wow. and I was like, it's not that bad. There's no humidity. There's <laughs> zero humidity my guy. So, I mean, there, there has been, we did go through monsoon season a few weeks ago. I'm guessing the two of you saw that video where we got the rain. And literally there was water falling out the TV screen at the circuit. It was amazing. I saw one of the best tweets ever that day. Somebody said, Hey, it's the new indoor circus swim. Uh, I was like, Oh my gosh, that tweet is a hundred. If you're going to put one of those little 100 emojis, that tweet gets a hundred. I mean, look, I, I don't, I, I want the book is fantastic and I certainly don't want them beat up or damaged at all, but you've got to admire that tweet. It was a good tweet. Um, you do get used to the heat, but it's, you know, May, mostly June, July, August, a little bit of May, a little bit of September. Um, and as I was told, I moved here on Memorial Day weekend of 94, my wife and I on our first anniversary, honestly, literally on our first anniversary. Wow. So, um, and it was hot right out of the gate. And my boss reminded me then, and I've kept it in mind ever since you don't have to shovel heat, <laughs> which yeah. is a, for a guy from Colorado. It's a very good point. I mean, I, I, I much more dread waking up on minus 10 degree mornings, scraping off my window, having to shovel snow from around my tires in order to get out. than I, then I do uh, 108, 110. So um, you do get used to it. The other things, look, I, I mean, I'm out in the books on the strip a lot. So I see, you know, some of the craziness and, you know, somebody, you know, huddled over a trash can at nine in the morning. And I'm like, man, that guy just needs to get to bed for a change. Um, You know, so I see a little of that, but in and out of the sports books, a lot, the people I'm dealing with, I don't have to deal with it too much, but I do see it. I certainly uh, relate to what you're talking about, John, but only from a visual, not from experience. Uh, I'm not 20 something anymore, but I live 10. I can get to the, I can be to the strip in 10 minutes. I can be to the airport in 10 minutes. But if you walk around my neighborhood, with the exception of June, July, August, it's a very regular neighborhood. We raised two very normal, well-adjusted kids here who are now on their own and doing great. So I love this city. The longer I'm here, the more I want to stay. Um, it's got the little drawbacks, but you, you learn to deal with those. And, uh, and again, I'm in a very normal area. I got a Costco a couple of miles one direction from me, a Costco a couple of miles the other direction from me. Uh, you know, the restaurants we like, we don't have to go to the, you know, we don't go to the strip very often. I do it for my work, obviously, but, uh, honestly, it's a great, it's a great city. I love living here. 
See, this is why you're wearing a shirt that says Vegas Insider, why you work for Vegas Insider, why you <laughs> could be de- described as the Vegas Insider. <laughs> Patrick, it has been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Great talking to you. I'll let all our listeners know in case by chance any of them don't follow you on Twitter. You can find him at Patrick E underscore Vegas on Twitter. Patrick, congrats again on the new gig. Welcome to the team. And thanks so much for joining us on Gamble On. Absolutely, Eric and John. I appreciate the two of you having me and uh, have a good time this football season. Try to enjoy it. And uh, we'll certainly uh, be talking and possibly collaborating more soon. We'll see how it goes. But uh, best to you as well with U.S. bets. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll, and we saw big ups and downs on John's side of the ledger. Not as much excitement on my side. So let's get mine out of the way first. I took a shot on the Hawaii over Vanderbilt upset pick. Close call. Hawaii only lost by 53 points. Uh, (laughs) That cost us $40. Uh, And then my boxing bet. I had plus 210 underdog Richard Comey over Jose Pedraza. I said the odds were too wide, and I was right that this was basically an even fight. And it was scored a draw after 10 rounds, which means we get our $50 back because I bet it in the two-way market at least instead of the three-way. Of course, the one time I thought about putting 10 bucks on the draw and didn't do it. (laughs) Anyway, Uh, so I lost us 40 bucks. Uh, John, meanwhile, rode a roller coaster. Uh, Last week's CFL bet didn't work out. We had Blue Bombers minus six, and they only won by two. So that's $165 loss. However, John's Rory McIlroy picks were big winners. He had Rory for top five at plus 140 for $100. That's $140 profit. And he had Rory to win outright at nine to one, unfortunately for only $10, but it's still a tidy $90 win after McIlroy's come from behind victory. So that means John's three bets worked out to a $65 win subtract my $40 loss and we won 25 bucks. Uh, But before I update the bankroll, as promised, I tallied up all of John's golf bets over four plus years. Mm. Um, And one quick caveat. Uh, I don't mark down whether a bet is yours or mine. In my spreadsheet, it just says something Mm. like Phil Mickelson, top 20 plus 110, Mm. then the amount bet and the amount returned. I don't think I've placed any golf bets over the life of this podcast, Mm. but Mm. maybe I did try one or two a few years ago. Mm. And if so, for better or worse, it's lumped in here. But I think these are all yours. Yeah. And one fascinating observation as I continue to drag out the suspense. Um, In the early days, you used to bet a lot more money on some of these. I had totally Mm. forgotten. You know, nowadays, if you're picking a guy at plus 1800 to win a tournament, Mm -hmm. it's 10 or 20 bucks or maybe Mm -hmm. 40 if you're feeling frisky. Mm. At the outset, you made a couple of hundred dollar bets at like 15 to one or 20 to one to win a tournament. Uh, Okay, now on to the results. Just prior to your big hit on Matthew Fitzpatrick to win the U.S. Open, the accumulated golf bets were at minus $2,079. Oof. Then you hit that $600 mm-hmm. and your good run has continued. You're up another 300 and change since. So you're currently at minus 1,134 on mm-hmm. golf, which sounds sort of bad, but with the sheer volume of your golf bets, I think it's like 200 or 250 bets over these four years. Mm-hmm. 
it's like a five or six dollar loss per bet, which basically tells me you're like a roughly even golf better and the books are beating you on the VIG. So so that's my analysis. Your reaction to hearing those numbers? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that uh, I didn't even remember that. But uh, yeah, betting a big number on uh, a long shot, obviously, is not likely to win. And as I've said before, if you're going to do it, do it, you know, 20 times and hit two of them and you're okay. Right. You do it like five times and you're going to go off for five and, and there it is. So, uh, so that's interesting. I was hoping to be, you know, maybe slightly up, but, uh, and I am for the last whatever, four months, but um, right. yeah, that's intriguing and definitely plays into uh, the idea of not going for the crazy long shot and um sticking with my point, but I think, uh, you know, I'm going to sign you now the rest of the year, uh, you know, once a week, you got to, or, or once a month, at least you got to come in with a, you know, and here's how we've, we've done collectively on uh, wacky uh, football, uh, <laughs> professional leagues. And here's how we've yeah. done on parlays, which is probably not going to be great. Ooh, no. uh, and so on. So <laughs> forth. But, That's uh, a good one. That, that, that actually sounds like an interesting one to do next is parlays, which we'll know that our either entirely mine or almost entirely yeah. mine. Um, and that, that'll that be interesting because I assume I'm not going to like that number. I don't remember too many of my parlays winning o- over these four years. Yeah, in all seriousness, though, this is what every gambler should do. Yes. They should have an annual uh, accounting of, you know, what each sport or and or, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you bet a lot of over-unders versus uh, point spreads or whatever and parlays versus straight-ups and just an idea of, you know, where am I doing well? Where am I doing poorly? Yes. And and you can kind of make an adjustment from there because uh, otherwise you're just running around. You don't even know what you're doing and uh, kind of like us um, until now. So uh, <laughs> I think we're going to learn from that and including like I again, I forgot that I even used to do that, you know, betting a lot of money on a, on a absolute long shot in golf, which is crazy and dumb and, and unprofitable. So right. uh, I've learned from that. And uh, uh, I think everybody should do that. And uh, it's just it. I think one state was talking about once they was talking about maybe doing that, where they the book should provide you with that. Right. I don't know if the book has to be required to do that, but if they do it or not, certainly you should as a gambler. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, even just the fact that we actually track our bankroll weekly without getting into the specifics yeah. of the sports is more than most people are doing. They're just, yeah. most people deposit. If it runs out, they deposit again, and they're not really tracking how they're doing at all. But you're right. It's a really useful thing to keep an eye on. If you're, if you're trying to be profitable, if you're just trying to have fun, I suppose, uh, you know, put your head in the sand and uh, and lose money that you can afford to lose, and it's fine. But Yeah, and thanks to the promotional bets here in New Jersey, uh, yes. I have never redeposited any money. <laughs> yes. I've also never taken out any money. So uh, I'm up over like a 1000 bucks, and the majority of that is probably uh, promotional numbers. But um uh, yeah. Will I ever take it out? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if I run out, I run out, I think. But Right. I, I, I do withdraw periodically, but I also am only beating sports betting because of the promos. And that's an important thing to note yeah. with our with our bankroll here that we we don't uh, take advantage of promos with yeah. our pretend bankroll. These are these are real uh, wins and losses against the house without any uh, without any of those boosts mm-hmm. and benefits. But. Uh, anyway, with last week's $25 profit, we are now down by $2,929. We still have $1,205 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $5,866 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first, and I'll start with a boxing bet as I lean into what I'm slightly beating the books at, uh, quite possibly the only sport I'm beating the books at, uh, and I'll put at risk a, a bit of my small lead over the house in this sport. Uh, Sunday night, 
a rare Sunday night pay-per-view because it's Labor Day weekend, so nobody's working Monday and there are no football games competing with it. A heavyweight fight that doesn't really belong on pay-per-view, but I guess they'll find out if people are willing to pay for it. Andy Ruiz versus Luis King Kong Ortiz. Interesting matchup of a quick-fisted boxer in Ruiz versus a heavy puncher in Ortiz. Uh, Ruiz is like a minus 300 to minus 400 favorite. That doesn't interest me, but Ruiz by decision is as high as plus 280. And that surprises me a little. If he's going to win, I think it's much more likely he does so by decision than by knockout. Yes, Ortiz has been knocked out in his only two losses, but they were both against Deontay Wilder, the biggest pure puncher the sport has seen in decades. So I think there's good value in Ruiz by decision at plus 280. Let's bet $50 to win 140, and uh, I'll more than recoup the cost of the pay-per-view, you know, as long as the cable company accepts pretend bankroll dollars. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so now I felt a four and two in CFL bets this year. But more importantly, I did not have the dominant offensive team for the first time. Uh, there wasn't one in this game, by the way. Um, now, one betting sweat crosses borders. I can tell you that. You have the team with a slim lead late and you need a touchdown, but they don't. And that clock just cruelly, cruelly slips to zero with your lads past midfield and they just don't care about your stupid bet. Yeah, so that was that one. Um, So off we go. And this time I'll dial it back to 110 to win 100 on the Calgary Stampeders minus 12 and a half points on another beatdown of the Edmonton Elks, if not as dominating as the 49-6 score when these teams met two months ago. Over 49 is tempting, too, but the one guarantee here really is the Elks' horrible defense, so I'm giving the points. Okay, so we got Stampeders minus 12 and a half. Um, I'm going to make a couple of football bets, non-CFL division. Uh, I'll get my college bet out of the way first. It's a quickie. We talked last week about those crazy Utah State national championship <laughs> bets. They are 1-0. Uh, now it's the big game for them at Alabama. And the line was Bama by 38 and a half when we talked about it last week. Now it's 42 and a half. That probably should tell me not to bet on Utah State. Everyone is on Bama. But, uh, hey, I'm getting four more points now. Just a half-size bet because I think it's fun. Uh, not to mention Alex Harden gave us those stats last week about the underdogs covering more than half the time when mm-hmm. the spread gets way up there. So let's do 55 to win 50 on Utah State plus 42 and a half. Now for the more interesting bet. Uh, John, I have two options. I'm going to let you choose which one you like more or mm. hate hate less, perhaps. Uh, FanDuel is offering something this year that I haven't seen before. In each NFL division, you can pick any combination of teams to finish top two in that division in any order. So if there's a division where I feel like there's something of a dividing line between the two best teams and the two worst teams, I might want to target that. The two that stand out are the NFC East, where clearly the Cowboys and Eagles are the top two on paper, uh, that would be a plus 110 payout for the two of them to finish in either order ahead of the Giants and uh, and your commies. Uh, and then there's the AFC West, where all four teams could be good, but I like the Chiefs and Chargers to finish ahead of the Broncos and Raiders, and the payout there is a bigger plus 210. So the amounts I have in mind are either 150 to win 165 on the Eagles and Cowboys, or 100 to win 210 on the Chiefs and Chargers? Your pick, John. Well, the NFC East is always unpredictable, even if the Giants are terrible again, and they will be. Um, also, I don't buy the Broncos. I agree with that. So only the ever ever enigmatic Raiders would beat that semi-long shot bet. So give me Chiefs and Chargers. All right. So we got 110, or sorry, 100 to win 210 on the Chiefs and Chargers, 1-2 mm-hmm. in any order. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, and then I'll, I'll try something. Uh, PGA Tour shockingly takes two consecutive weekends off for once uh, before a Napa Valley hit and giggle prior to the Live Tour ruined President's Cup of U.S. versus not Europe. Yeah, it's going to be brutal. Um, so let's try college football as my other bet this week. I dabbled in Louisville over Syracuse, but who cares? So Ohio State versus Notre Dame, that's the game. And I found the Buckeyes minus 17 versus the Irish on DraftKings at only minus 110. No minus 17 and a half there, no bigger VIG. So I like the number a lot. You know, any team not in the SEC is bound to feel the need to run up the score or against decent opponents that they can play off. So don't panic if it's Ohio State by two touchdowns mid-fourth quarter. They'll score again and make us happy. So that's 110 to win 100 on that yes. one? All right. And uh, tradition continues. John betting against Notre Dame, as he <laughs> loves to do. Uh, and that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Patrick Everson. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, so I'm going to wing it here because I watched Serena Williams on Wednesday night uh, win her second round match. And uh, my first gambling instinct is, you know, bet against her on uh, her next match on Friday night. You know, she beat a number two player in the world. She's had two thrilling matches. It's been a great run and she's going to get crushed and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? I mean, we've talked about life's too short a few times in the last couple of months of this podcast. Life's too short to do that. I mean, <laughs> and not only that, for, first of all, watch the match, root for her. She's 40 years old. She's not perfect. You can complain about this and that, but whatever, but go for it. And more importantly, though, interesting that Tiger Woods was in the stands. I've never seen him in a stands at any sporting event ever. And there he was Wednesday night. And I think he senses a little something. And uh, so aside from the, you know, gambling cold blooded thing, if you're going to be so confident on betting against her, keep in mind Tiger a couple of years ago in the masters who I had gave no shot. And you know what? Everybody fell down on Sunday because he was in it. 1986 masters. I watched Jack Nicholas, the roars in the crowd at Augusta national and everybody fell down and it happens. I mean, and Wednesday night, number two player, she's broken at five, two. And I don't just mean her serve. I mean, she loses in four points on her last serve. She's done. You know, it happens. I was there for all five Jimmy Connors matches at the U S open in 1991, uh, 39 years old. He's like a wood racket guy and he's winning out of nowhere. The crowd carrying him over the finish line. I mean, so while I mainly think just don't bet against something that's really cool and fun because you know, why not just, just go for the sentiment, but also, be a little careful. The crazy things happen when all-time greats who are over the hill are in the mix. So I just say be careful and, again, be sentimental, too. And with that, until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.